We are always told from the time that we are small that the justice system is here to help us. That if we just tell the truth, there is nothing to fear and that good people do not end up in bad places. It's a safe thing to believe, a reassuring way to walk through life and a nice vision of the world around us and the people who walk in it. But there is just one problem. It isn't true. There are all kinds of people in prison. People who have made mistakes, people who have lived terrifying lives, people who have done horrible things, people who are scared, people who are smart, and yes, people who are innocent. In short, whether you want to admit it or not, in just about every prison around the globe, you can find a person who is just like you. Prison is a vacuum. Every day is the same, and yet every intention is different. I share a cell with a wide-eyed young girl, and she says she's not supposed to be here. None of us are supposed to be here. She says she didn't do what they say she did, that the police have altered her reality beyond a place where she could even see the lines between fact and fiction. And this sounds insane to an outsider. It sounds insane because we want it to be. Not having the keys to your own door because of a crime you didn't commit is too frightening to be true. She says they claim she murdered her friend, a woman who was smart and young and beautiful, a woman who was charming and charismatic, kind and curious, a woman who was full of life and is now somehow dead. None of it is fair, but fair is an empty word. The reality is that you can go from piazza to prison cell in a matter of minutes if they want you to. As fully in charge of your own life as you think that you might be, the truth is, you're not. People only see what they want to see, and if their gaze turns to you, they can create who you are and what you have done. They can choose between your life and death. There is a jury of your peers constantly circulating, but they don't always wear the badge. We are walking around, secretly helpless, and the best you can hope for is to never know it. Let me put things another way. Imagine you are locked inside a box. Outside that box is everything you know to be uniquely yours. Your intelligence, your experiences, your memories, your most secret thoughts, your dreams, your fantasies, your lovers, your enemies. It's all there, just outside. Inside the box are only words that others have put on you, and you're forced to swim in them until they stick. Then you must walk outside, right past everything you hold dear, wearing only those words, whether you like it or not. Do you hold your head high, knowing the truth that is inside? Or do you collapse under the weight of the lies that are stuck on tight? I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. can't hear my cat grumbling. <laughs> 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 my
my cat Binks is laying on the table and he made some sounds. He sure did. <laughs> that was a little beach body going on tonight. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Beans. This week we're covering a case that received an awful lot of media attention, Ooh, which is usually helpful when trying to find a killer unless the media is focused on the wrong person. Oof. Yeah, which in this case, they absolutely were. This week, we're talking about the horrifying murder of Meredith Kirchner and the subsequent rapturous witch hunt for Amanda Knox. We got into it this week. (laughs) I feel like I know too much. Yeah, a little bit. I hope that I get everything in that I want to. I have like a haze of writing and notes and madness, (laughs) but we're going to do the best that we can. There was so much to read and learn. Amanda herself is very vocal about her experiences. And now I just really like want to hug her a hundred times. I know. Yeah. If it wasn't like awkward and weird because we don't know each other. <laughs> I'd be like, <laughs> she'd be like, please don't touch me. Can we be friends, please? Yeah. <laughs> I want you to make bread on Instagram now. Oh, I know. That's fun. It's very cute. If you're not familiar with this case, you'll soon see why we're saying this. Before we get into it. Oh, Leslie. Holly. I've been feeling very, I don't know. Oh, you don't have to say it, girl. I've been feeling it too. What is it? Dull? Dry? <laughs> the cat is on my face now. <laughs> he knows you're dry. I know. I wonder if you can you. hear him purring. Yeah, he did come <laughs> over to fix me. I've just been feeling dull. I mean, I switch to green smoothies for breakfast. I roller skate every day, but I'm not seeing the difference I'm after. I cannot drink enough water. I know. Just got to like try and do anything we can. But do you know what I think would help? Tell me. It's a word that we say sometimes. Validation. That's it. Good guess. Fiends, if you want to put a little spring back into our step, then head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It only takes a minute, but it makes a world of difference to us. If you would like to go a little farther than that and be part of the machine that moves We Would Be Dead forward, you can stop by our Patreon, where for just a little monthly donation, you get access to our additional monthly podcast, 30-Minute Horror Movies, which I think we're recording this week. Yeah. Yes. Our live camp story events, which will be the end of this month this time more extra content like this this month it'll be some of our full interviews with doctors regarding the covid vaccine which we are talking about next week and coming soon there'll be some extra sideshow content which people have asked for yeah so i'm super excited about that uh and a lot more including discounts to our merchandise and a special on-air toast just for you perfect It's it's so nice and if all that is a little much for you you can always just share our posts on social media Let's get your friends to be fiends, and then we can all hang out together. Oh, and invite them to our Facebook group. It's cool over there. Yeah, it's so fun. I like it. Everybody there is so nice and funny and fun and insightful. Mm -hmm. So yeah, go over there. So before we get into this week's story, let me take a minute to acknowledge some of our sources and some further reading you guys can do if you get really into this case like Leslie and I did. Uh, I drew most of my information from Amanda Knox's book called Waiting to be Heard. It's a great read and probably the only source you can trust when it comes to what actually happened to Amanda. Uh, The Netflix documentary Amanda Knox is also an excellent source of information and covers the perspective of the press as well, which plays... A pretty big part in this case. And normally, this wouldn't be something that we needed to consider, like media report stuff, whatever. But the media really dictates a lot of things that happen to Amanda in this case, strangely enough. So it's interesting to hear what they have to say for themselves. Yeah. And in my opinion, they should be fucking ashamed. Agreed. They're not, though. They sure aren't. Or at least that one guy isn't. Yeah, I feel like they're the 
like epitome of fake news. <laughs> yeah. It's just, I don't know. We'll get into it later, but it really makes me mad. Uh, Also, Raffaele Solecito, whose name I had to try to pronounce a hundred times, but I like so much, so I had to do it, um, also wrote a book called Honor Bound about his experiences that Mm -hmm. I recommend you all check out, and I'm recommending it blindly because I didn't know it existed until like the last 10 pages of Amanda's book. Okay. (laughs) But Raffaele suffered pretty intensely and often gets glossed over in the retelling of these events, so you should read what he has to say. Lastly, Meredith Kircher's father, renowned journalist John Kircher, wrote a book called Meredith about his daughter, her murder, and their search for the truth. John Kircher's book is going at it from the other side of the table. They still kind of think Amanda and Raphael are, are guilty, and I don't blame them for literally anything. I cannot imagine what they've been through. While in my heart, I firmly believe that they're innocent, I just... I can't blame anyone in their position for thinking, yeah, for trying to make sense out of the senseless, I should say. So this book is not a major source in today's podcast, but I really felt responsible to mention it so that you can read about it if you want to read their side of the story. Great. Um, There are over 20 books published about this case. Yeah. Which is nuts. But those three are authored by people who actually lived it. So um, I can give their books the We Would Be Dead stamp of approval. Cool. Oh, and um, I've taken to moving this up front in the podcast where we talk about our sources because we did have someone question them at one point in time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, she just tried to tell me I didn't read. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, but but because of this, I want to be really transparent and mention them right away so you guys know where you can find more information. I will also provide links in the show notes to anything I just talked about, plus um, where you can find Amanda's Netflix documentary. It's Netflix, but like I'll still put a link in there. Mm-hmm. Why not? And Netflix also, they do a, what is that called? Like a buddy podcast. Know. Oh, do they? Yeah. So I listened to the episode about the Amanda Knox documentary mm-hmm. and they had on the director and that was a very interesting listen. So if you do watch the documentary and then you listen to the Netflix podcast episode about it, it was very what is, insightful. What does he like? Give us a little, what does he say? Cause uh, so what I thought was interesting is because when you watch the documentary, you are left kind of feeling like, Oh, this might be a little biased towards Amanda. Right. You know, um, that she's innocent. But when you listen to the director, you realize that he mostly went at it with the, he was mostly interested in the media side and how yeah. that controlled well, the narrative. And you could definitely see that. But he said that the way that the interviews popped up, mm-hmm. that's just how the movie went. So yeah. the fact that Amanda kind of seems innocent is because she probably was. Is yeah, um, I firmly so, believe that she's but innocent. you get to hear a lot more about. I mean, he they've been working on that documentary for five years, so mm-hmm. there's so much extra information that you get. It was really interesting. It that's was great. cool. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that one I didn't listen to, but that's really great. Do you have anything else you'd like to add, Leslie? No, not this week. I should have asked you that before you added the Netflix stuff. Yeah, because <laughs> you had something. <laughs> I didn't know I had something. <laughs> you <guess>. did. <laughs> this is going to be a pretty conversational episode because we um, we really got, well, there's there's a glut of information on it, and it's easy to say one thing and not say another just because there happens to be so much. Yeah. So because both of us have done an excessive amount of research, I feel there's going to be a lot of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, just so we try and get everything into the next hour and a half. Yes. Two hours. I don't know. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right then. Let's get on with the show. Meredith Susanna Kara Kircher was born on December 28, 1985, 
the day after my birthday. Nice. And also four years later. In Southwark, London, England, two parents, which is probably pronounced Southark or something. I'm so sorry, London. I've never been to you and I want to be. Don't be mad at me. Uh, London, which is in England, obviously. To her parents, John and Arlene Kircher, from what I can triangulate about um, the ages of the Kircher siblings, Meredith was the youngest in her family, joining her brother Lyle and her sister Stephanie and making their family complete. They don't mention their names and their um, ages in a lot of things, but I mm. looked at when they went to school. <laughs> Meredith was a charismatic, intelligent, and beautiful girl. She studied hard and made friends very easily. Meredith attended the old palace school at Croydon, spending one year abroad when she was 15. Upon returning home from her time abroad, Meredith and her family spent the summer in Sessa Arunca, a beautiful town on Italy's southern coast. While there, Meredith fell in love with Italy and vowed that she would learn the language and eventually live there when she grew up. Awesome. Yeah, so that's nice. Meredith, or Mez, as her friends called her. Cool. Which is cute from her friends, but then when the prosecutor refers to her as that the entire trial, it's disgusting. Yeah. Anyway, she went on to study European politics and the Italian language at the University of Leeds. So she has a foundation in Italian. She can speak some when she goes there. While she is at the University of Leeds, she works as a bartender and a tour guide to support herself. She appeared in a music video. Oh. Too. Yeah. She's pretty and fun. So she Do we know which one or no? Yeah, I'll put it, I'll tag it somewhere. It was no one I had ever heard of okay. ever. So <laughs> But I'm sure they're very cool. Yeah. And when the opportunity presented itself for her to take a year to study in Italy, where she could learn Italian, she obviously jumped on it immediately. Meredith elected to take this year abroad in Perugia, Italy, where she would study at the University of Perugia. So we're going to talk an awful lot about Perugia today, so let me give you a little quick rundown on what it's like. <laughs> Perugia is the capital city of both the region of Umbria and central Italy, crossed by the River Tiber and the province of Perugia. The city is located about 102 miles north of Rome and 92 miles southeast of Florence, if that does anything for you. You're welcome. (laughs) It covers a high hilltop and part of the valleys around the area. Perugia is a college town. And it's really funny in Amanda's book, she talks about how when she decided to study there, she thought it was going to be like this pastoral, like rural land where there was like cows grazing in the sea and stuff. And it was like little cottages. (laughs) And she got there and it was like, oh, this is like the Boston of Italy. (laughs) Well, that's what um, in some research I did, a lot of people from Seattle Mm-hmm. do go there. Oh, yeah. For, <laughs> and they were saying that they tend to go there a lot because it's very similar to Seattle. <laughs> yeah. No, she thought she was going to get like a very different experience and she rolled up and was like, nope. Nope. This is a college town. All yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> so they the Perugia contains the University of Perugia, which was founded in 1308. This is an old town. I love it. Yeah, the buildings are very old. The University for Foreigners. and some smaller colleges such as the Academy of the Fine Arts uh, Pietro Venucci uh, Public Athenium oh yes yes yeah yeah you love that one founded in 1573 (laughs) the Perugia University Institute of Linguistic Meditation for translators and interpreters not meditation sorry (laughs) love that you're having trouble with this linguistics I know I hate it (laughs) The Perugia University Institute of Linguistic Mediation for Translators and Interpreters. Oof. Yeah, you say that one. (laughs) (laughs) The Music Conservatory of Perugia, founded in 1788, and other institutes. So there are a lot of colleges about. 
It sounds so cool there, though. It does sound cool. I never want to go there, but it does <laughs> sound cool. Perugia is also well-known um, as a cultural and artistic center in Italy. The city hosts multiple annual festivals and events, like mm-hmm. the Euro Chocolate Festival. That sounds fun. Mm-hmm. That happens in October. The Umbria Jazz Festival in July, and the International Journalism Festival. It sounds less fun in April. <laughs> Perugia is rich in history, culture, and young, good-looking people. So it's not a terrible time for a college student. I mean, that's a college town. Yeah. Everyone's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, like I use Boston as an example, but Boston is an old, old, old American city. It's the same thing. So, I mean, not old compared to Italy stuff. Right. It was a lot older. (laughs) Meredith had found a beautiful flat that she would share with four other women, the Villa de la Pergola, number seven. There are a group of boys on the ground floor, and Meredith, along with her flatmates, Laura Mazzetti and Filomena Romanelli, who were Italian women in their late 20s, and 20-year-old Amanda Knox, would have the top floor. Amanda was from America, and so it was comforting to know that there was like another person that spoke English. Meredith arrived in Perugia in late August of 2007 and immediately found a group of other British girls with whom she made fast friends. Meredith was 21 at the time. She was relatively well-traveled and sophisticated and fit in well with life among Italian women. There's a lot of talk of how, like, mature and well-dressed and poised she was. Nice. Yeah, so good for her. That's cool. Philomena and Laura, the older two women, they're, like, in their late 20s. I think they're, like, 28-ish. Okay. Um, While very friendly and, like, when they were in the flat, they would hang out with them. They were older and they lived different lives. And because of that, uh, Meredith... Normal, naturally gravitated to her one younger roommate, who was Amanda. And Amanda arrived on the 20th of September in 2007. So Amanda's journey to Perugia had been a little less seamless, but what she lacked in a smooth transition, she made up for in enthusiasm. Hmm. Amanda Knox was born on July 9th, 1987 in Seattle, Washington, to parents Kurt Knox, who was the vice president of finance at the local Macy's department store, hmm. and Edda Mellis, a local math teacher. So just a few years after her birth, Amanda's parents would end up getting divorced. And while they were never friendly, they were committed to co-parenting. And um, her father went so far as to just buy a house like down the block. Hmm. So they were so close that they could just always be involved in each other's lives. Amanda and her sister, Deanna, that is, because the two, Amanda and Deanna, were from her parents' marriage. But Amanda actually had three sisters. Deanna was just the only one with whom she shared a father. The other two sisters were Delaney and Ashley, they still are, I suppose. And they were from Amanda fa- Amanda's father, Kurt's second marriage. But Amanda's primary residence was with her mother and Deanna and her mother's um, second husband, Chris. Okay. So she split her time for a while. And then about when she was like around 14 years old, she kind of permanently just moved in with her mom. And so did her sister. It's kind of like her father had a new family. Right. And so she felt like, mm, my place is over here. Amanda attended Seattle Prep High School. And then went on to the University of Washington, Seattle. Amanda refers to Seattle Prep as her Jesuit high school, which is a pretty strict line of Catholics. Yeah. Which would keep her pretty innocent. (laughs) (laughs) Amanda had also been to Italy at 15, so they both went there. And fell in love with the language and the culture. So Amanda and Meredith have this in common. But I guess, like, don't go to Italy when you're 15 unless you want to live there forever or have, like, a horrible event happen to you when you relocate. Stop. <laughs> go at 14. Wait till you're 16. Yeah. I don't know. Just not 15. Just not when you're 15. Just saying. 
While Meredith was a sleek and sophisticated young British woman, Amanda describes herself as a bit naive and immature for her age. She was quirky and athletic and experienced and idealistic and a real like head in the clouds kind of girl. Mm -hmm. It's quirky, not quirky. If you say quirky, I need you to correct it, people, please. It's just a note for the world. Not for you, Leslie. You don't say that. Thank you. You're welcome. Now I feel like... I'm going to say it because you said it. Don't do it. It's I was not, like, I don't say it. But. Not quirky. Do you know uh, quirky is a word that I visualize when I say it? Quirk is? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Is that a thing? I don't know. I don't know why, but I always do. Maybe so you don't say cork. Maybe, yeah. I also think it's a funny spelling. I don't know why. Maybe yeah. that's why. Maybe. I just realized that it's I did that, but I can visualize it. Do you see the sign yeah. in your head? Quirko. <laughs> yeah. That's cute. <laughs> Anyway, Amanda wears soap stuff there sometimes. Do you? Sometimes. I didn't know that. That's cool. So Amanda was Amanda was known for singing loudly wherever she was, like even in the halls of school. She would dance around like no one was watching, say whatever came into her head. But she thought that all of this was going to change after her year in Italy. She's really committed to being in Italy, shaping her into an adult. Love it. I know. She's going to have her wild oats sewn <laughs> and come back. An Italian-speaking woman. Love that journey for her. I know, but like, I also, I understand it. That's a yeah, cool thing to want to do. Of course. Little did she know how right she was that Italy would, in fact, oh, change her. Stop. I know. Amanda worked hard <laughs> at several jobs um, while she was in Seattle to, to save enough money to live in Perugia for a year and study at the University of Foreigners, which, like, I... <laughs> can I we just she talk was at about the University it? of Perugia. No, Meredith studied at the University of Perugia. That's right, okay. Amanda studied at the university, I think it's four foreigners. I can't believe that's a real thing. It sounds like an insult. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they might just be blunt. It Here's where the be... foreigners go. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> maybe said, you have to have a level of speaking Italian. I don't think so, because Amanda mentions in her book that when she got there, she's like assumed that Meredith would also be at the University for Foreigners. And she goes, no, I'm studying at the University of Perugia. And Amanda was like, I didn't even know that was an option. I should have done that. Probably be more Italian and less money. Great. Wow. <laughs> yeah, okay. she didn't. I, I guess um, her college just didn't present that as a program she could go into. Okay. So, but she, she didn't even know it was an option. Hmm. So they were like, you go to the place for foreigners. <laughs> anyway, in August of 2007, Amanda took a trip to Perugia with her sister Deanna in anticipation of her year there in the coming fall. She wanted to get a sense of the city and find a place to live, which is smart. You can't move somewhere with nowhere to live. And while she was in the city for just a couple of days, Amanda met Laura Mazzetti on the street one day while she was putting up flyers looking for roommates. Okay. So that's pretty cool. And her roommate, her, this was the the woman who lived in the flat via Della Pergola, number seven. This was a, a kismet moment. She's like, I need a roommate. She's like, I am a roommate. What? <laughs> what? They got along really famously. They hung out for a little bit. Amanda was very, very excited to go live there with them. And they later called her and like updated her and said, well, we found a fourth roommate. It's a young woman from England. So there'll be another English speaker. Everything looked like it was going to be perfect and fun. It's great. Amanda would arrive back in Perugia on September 20th, 2007 to begin her year of study. It was that day that she met Meredith for the first time. Meredith was kind and popular and offered to take Amanda all around to all of her favorite spots so she could meet everybody. So she was like this cool girl. That's so fun. That sounds Isn't like it? my college roommate. Oh, yeah, she I was really that. nice like that. She was Aww. too popular for me. I couldn't keep up. <laughs> 
I feel you. I was so scared of her. Oh, no. <laughs> but she worked at Abercrombie & Fitch, so I got to wear all her clothes. Oh, my God. You're so cool. I know. All right. Well, before we get into the rough stuff, we're talking about these two really fun young girls who now inhabit the same flat in Italy. So why don't you, Leslie, set the stage for us with a little pop culture snapshot of this time in history. What are these girls living? How are they dressing? What is their life like? Well, first up, this was, I I broke it up into different categories this week. All right. So this is what was happening in the news Tell in 2007. Because this is a media sensation, so give us other news. Yeah, um, some bad things. On Ooh, April shit. 16th, 2007, 32 people died after being gunned down on the campus of Virginia Tech. Oh, I will never forget that. I will never forget that either. Um, so I'm the same age as Amanda. I totally forgot. I always thought that she was older, like my brother's age. Mm. And then I realized that... We were born the same year, so we were going through a lot of the same things. And this was yeah, you're only a couple months apart. Mm-hmm. And she would have been in America at her college at this point. So I, I imagine that we were both just sitting in front of the TV watching Absolutely. this happen. Yeah, because um, I remember all our classes were canceled, and we were just like sitting there. Oh my god, she must have been so glad to go to another country. Yeah. So the shooter there was a student at the college um, who later died by suicide. Um, all right, in technology. <laughs> We'll switch gears. <laughs> June 29th, Apple releases the very first iPhone, oh, which was only available for AT&T users and cost $600. Mm. Wild. In pop culture, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, the final book of the series, was published. Oh my God, I remember waiting in line <laughs> at midnight to get that book. I had a thing where I set up where I woke up that morning and it was on my front step. Oh, man. And then I took it to work, and I worked like a 13-hour day mm-hmm. that day, and I just sat there. At, I worked at a scar shop, and I just read the whole thing. Oh, my God. No, <laughs> I so rode my—I was living in Cape May, and like Will and I rode our bikes into town, and we waited in line at the bookstore there at Atlantic Books, and we got it then. Oh, awesome. Yeah, it was cool. Uh, movies that were out were 300. Oh, yeah. Spider-Man 3 and Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. <laughs> So much Harry Potter. Well, Harry Potter comes back into play in this. It does. That's why I put it in there. (laughs) Uh, Popular TV shows, R.I.P. The O.C. Oh, you love it. I did. Grey's Anatomy, which is the reason why The O.C. died. Grey's Anatomy is still on TV, isn't it? It's still on TV, but this was the big show then, so it was like in its second year. Grey's Anatomy has been on TV for 150 years. I can't wrap my brain around it. (laughs) And The Amazing Race was like big to watch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Popular music. So this is all the stuff we were dancing to. Yes. Irreplaceable by Beyonce. Mm. Umbrella by Rihanna. Yeah. I can, every time I think of going to a bar around this time, I always remember Umbrella playing. I worked in retail at that time, so it just played on a loop (laughs) all the time. This was also, my brother and I were talking about music of like the 2000s, and he kept bringing up, he was like, no, at the clubs, it was like, you know, hip hop. And I was like, it was... But there was a lot of pop, and we realized, and I did a little research, the 2000s was when pop started to switch over. And so the music that we kind of listen to now Mm -hmm. is because of the 2000s. Like, it's a lot more pop-driven than, like, R&B and hip-hop. Okay, I'm here for it. I love a pop tune. Yeah. Um, The Sweetest Escape by Gwen Stefani featuring Akon. Oh, my God. I can now picture this year perfectly. Yep. Uh, Big Girls Don't Cry by Fergie. Fergie had a couple hits. <laughs> oh, man. I used to sing that at karaoke. Uh-huh. Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> you were there, you know. <laughs> I remember. Um, this was the year. This was big. Crank That, Soldier Boy. <laughs> oh. 
I didn't sing that at karaoke. No, but that was big. <laughs> uh, smack That by Akon. Crank it, smack it, all that <laughs> shit. Let's go. Akon had, he was featured on like a thousand different songs and he had like three in the top 40. Wow. Killing uh, it. That, that's his, his year. <laughs> Walk It Out by Unk or Unk, Unk. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to say unk. What if it's unk? <laughs> I don't know. He didn't look like an unk. No, so I think it's an unk. <laughs> I love that possibility, though. It's real funny. Okay. Uh, this ain't a scene. It's an arms race by Fall Out Boy. That was my jam. Mm. And this was like my favorite song ever. Welcome to the Black Parade by My Chemical Romance. Thank you. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Um, so stuff that we were wearing... Hollister, yeah. Abercrombie, American Eagle. Yeah. Um, I don't think I was wearing any of that. There, it was, I mean, it depended what you were. I'm, I was very preppy, so it was mostly that stuff. Yeah. Gap was like if you were trying to be a little nicer going to the city. <laughs> but the Gap started to stop, so it was definitely more Abercrombie and Hollister. Oh, Express. Express yeah. was big. Okay, I had Express clothes. Uh, Charlotte Russe was yep. what I could afford. Mm-hmm, same, um, Forever 21, those yeah, places. That was big. Okay. Yeah. And we didn't have Tinder yet. So. No. I never did any online dating. There was a Facebook app. I think that happened. That might have happened my fa- uh, around this time, but there was a Facebook app where they, it was like the original trying to MySpace find was people thing on then. your. It was, but Facebook in college. It did launch in like 2007, 2008, somewhere in there. Yeah, you're right. No, it, it lo- Facebook launched when I was in. High school, so oh, really? launched the it's year. That long ago? Yeah, so when it was just at Harvard, I'll do oh, like a little yeah. background. It was probably like maybe our freshman or sophomore mm-hmm. year, just for like a few years only at Harvard. And then when I was a senior, so when she would have been a senior, yeah, yeah, yeah. that was about the first year that they opened it up to just college students. Okay, so you had once you got your college email, oh, you could then sign up for Facebook. Got it. And then, then you had to be a certain age because I remember mm-hmm. I could talk to other people that weren't college students on mm-hmm. there when I finally got to college. And then slowly, like high schoolers could be on Because they talk about it. her being on social media, but I'm pretty sure it's predominantly MySpace that they're it's, talking about. We still had our MySpace up and we still did things like that, but you would you still would have talked to your friends maybe through mm-hmm. Facebook, but MySpace was still the big one where you yeah. had already had a Because I think that's where they get all of eight. her pictures and information is from MySpace. I don't think it's from Facebook because I yeah. don't think she's, we, we're quite there yet where it says ubiquitous as it is now. It's right. everywhere. Well, I remember when I was uh, getting ready for college, people would find you on Facebook oh, and be, okay. they'd be like, oh, you're going to Springfield, I'm going to Springfield too. Huh. And then- um, Because that's like, I didn't know anybody in my freshman mm-hmm. year going, so we would meet and be like, oh, I'm an athletic trainer and I'm going to be at Springfield. And so I remember like meeting up with this guy, Jeff, that like we like walked in together. Jeff. I know, Jeff. <laughs> um, But then we would find each other on MySpace because that's where everything else was. Interesting. Okay. Well, that does come back. So that was an important little bit. Is that our whole world? Yeah, that's my world. It's a whole world. I remember that world very specifically. World. Like, as soon as you started talking about the songs, I remember exactly what I was doing and exactly what things looked like. And, like, yeah. I can just remember it. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but still. <laughs> it, it's enough time. Yeah, for sure. It's over 10 years. Yeah. Which is nuts. Oh, I know. I feel very old. All right. So back in Perugia, Amanda had settled into life there nicely. Uh, Amanda and Meredith were both attending classes at their separate universities, as we have established. And during their first month there, they spent most of their time together. 
They were the two youngest girls in the house. They both spoke English. It made perfect sense. The two would gossip about local boys, occasionally smoke marijuana or drink a little wine, and go out and about together. They had a lot of fundamental differences, but their living situation showed them that deep down they were also very much the same. Meredith took Amanda out on the town, and Amanda would teach Meredith how to play guitar and do yoga. These are big things for Amanda. She loves music, and she loves yoga, and they come back time and time again. Girl. The girls went to the International Chocolate Festival together. So fun. They shopped for vintage clothes and shared their dating trials and tribulations. Amanda went on a handful of dates with a handful of men, a few of which she would end up sleeping with. Little did she know this would later come back to get her so hard. Because this is an incredibly unusual behavior for an American-aged college girl. Newsflash, a lot of us sleep around in college a little, and here's why. We never knew we could before then. Amanda was cute in America, but when she got to Italy, she was beautiful, blonde, and exotic and American. And I bet the attention was a little dizzying at times. Mm-hmm. She speaks openly in her book about wanting to find herself in Italy and about thinking that she might be able to discover some of the things of like what she would like in a relationship by experiencing some casual relationships with men. She's like, I'm going to sleep with some people. I'm going to date around. I'm going to see what life is like. Sounds fine to me. It sounds <laughs> fine to me, too. The casual sex sex didn't work out super well for her. In the end, she felt a lot more heartsick than she did happy. But that also sounds exactly right to me. Yes. Yeah. So I'm going to be real candid here for a minute because I'm almost 40 and why the fuck not? My mother listens, but this shouldn't really shock her. Just don't tell my dad. This was (laughs) me in college. A hundred percent. I was lost. I didn't really know who I was. I felt more like a child than other people my age. I felt young for my group of friends. Um, I felt ill-equipped to be on my own. And for the past prior 17 years of my life, nobody ever thought I was pretty. So when I got to college and boys started paying attention to me, fucking forget it. I was absolutely irresponsible and had my heart broken by a bunch of dudes who just wanted to sleep with me. I thought anyone who tried to kiss me like liked me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> that could not have been farther from the truth. Which sucks, but this... It really isn't a unique experience. To me, it sounds totally par for the course for a 20-year-old girl. Yeah. We all come around in the end afterwards. 20 is legally an adult, but for some of us, it's still a pretty childlike time. It's a scary bridge to teeter on and one that a lot of your friends have already crossed without you. Mm -hmm. There are a few ages I would repeat if I could. 20 is not one of them. No. It is such a confusing time. The girls um, in their flat were also friendly with their downstairs neighbors. As I mentioned, there were two apartments in this house. There was upstairs and downstairs. Downstairs lived Giacomo, Stefano, and Marco. Nice. Yeah. I know. I loved all their names. (laughs) I know. They're so good. There's a fourth, and they don't really mention him. I don't know why. Maybe he wants to remain anonymous. Maybe. Um, They would all get together, the eight of them, most evenings after dinner, and they would smoke a joint, maybe drink a little wine and socialize. Sometimes the boys would come over for lunch. They were just like, they were all buddies. Um, And Amanda describes them as like their older brothers, but also like incurable flirts. Okay. And I think that relationship is so familiar to many of us. Yeah. Where you're like, you're not dangerous, but you like to flirt with me sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that's like Italian men, too. (sighs) (laughs) 
By this time, it's early October, and Amanda has realized that her academic schedule is not exactly going to be as rigorous as she thought. She thought she was going to be like in class all the time and studying, but when she got there, they were like, you have two classes. They're like, well, you're a foreigner. You can only handle two. You go to the college for foreign people. <laughs> you get language and also language. <laughs> Goodbye. And that was it. So she was kind of like, okay, I thought I was going to be studying all the time. And she realized that she had begun to get like listless and lonely. So she decided that she would find herself a job. Makes sense. This is more immersion in the language, make a little money. It does make perfect sense. So she tells her roommates this, like, I want to get a job. And her roommate, Laura, quickly introduces her to a man named Juve, Juve, J-U-V-E, who in turn introduces her to a man named Patrick Lamumba, who's going to come back. And he owned a bar um, or a pub that they call it called Le Chic. Mm. Mm, Le Chic. Patrick quickly gave Amanda a job, and her job was to pass out flyers to get people to go to the club for the night, and then she would be a cocktail waitress once the club opened. Um, and this is nothing she had ever done before. He was like, and you've worked in a bar, you know what it is. So like, make sure that you flirt with people to get them to sit down and that you keep their glasses full at all times. Yes. So... But she was like, I don't know how to do any of that. So <laughs> I'm going to sing a Beatles song. No. <laughs> I know. She's so cute. Um, this is not exactly the kind of job she had the constitution for, but it was a job. And they kind of threw her into it, so she took it. After a couple of harrowing experiences with men who were a little too pushy, um, Amanda and Meredith would work out a system wherein Amanda would always be able to have Meredith walk her home if she needed. Like okay. She would text her or call her, and she would come and meet her at a point and then walk her home. And this proves to be worthy of mentioning because one evening when Lachique closed early, Amanda calls Meredith to walk her home. And the girl stopped by a local bar called Piazza Number 4 Novembre. So Piazza November 4th, <laughs> where they met up with their downstairs neighbor boys. Because oh, we have neighbor boys. Neighbor boys. <laughs> I know. And another man they had never met before. His name was Rudy, and he was originally from the Ivory Coast. The boys played basketball with him occasionally, and Rudy um, told the boys at one point that he was interested in Meredith. He, Meredith yeah. went to the bathroom, and he said to the guys, like, I think that she's really good looking. Is she single? And they, so, and then Meredith and Amanda came out, and the boys were all laughing. So there was never really a resolution to that. I think the guys were like, yeah, whatever, you don't have any chance. Um, and then that just kind of absolved. Meredith was obviously not interested in him. Nothing ever happened. See, I have that he... F in several accounts that he first asked that about Amanda and oh, at really? the time she wasn't dating anybody and but then that again didn't resolve but then he did also yeah. equally feel that way about Meredith. So I'm getting this from Amanda's book. Okay. So maybe she's not mentioned in there for reasons. I think she's mentioned later because he puts her in as someone who was involved in this crime. Mm -hmm. Um but maybe he did say both of them. They were both very pretty girls. It's definitely possible. There is a lot of gray area in this. Yeah, yeah. So really, it's not a big yeah. point no, of no, contention, but, but he did find them, at least he found them equally attractive. And rightfully so. So shortly after, during a night out, after this night happened where they met Rudy, Meredith confides in Amanda that she actually has feelings for Giacomo, one mm -hmm. of their downstairs neighbors. Uh, and the two, the night they were out that night and they're out with Giacomo and their other roommates. And um, a random friend of the boys from Rome. Not Rudy, just another guy. And Meredith ends up with Giacomo. They end up kissing and then they go home together. And it's super cute because they were like neighbors and they fell in love or whatever. And Meredith ended up taking the random friend from Rome home to their apartment. Okay. 
So this is the one and only time, aside from, I don't think Raffaele ever stays there, that she has a man in the house. Okay. So they wake up the next morning, and Meredith is downstairs with Giacomo. She comes out. Her and this man are, like, standing at the counter eating. Her other two roommates come out and see that she's brought a man home. This is relevant because later they will talk about how she entertained men and how slutty she is. Oh. And this is the one time they saw her with a, with a man. One and only time she brought someone into their house. Wild. Yeah. So that's why I'm telling this story because it does come back and it is relevant. Okay. So then on Thursday, October 25th, Meredith and Amanda went to see some live classical music. But Meredith left to meet up with her British friends at intermission <laughs> because most likely it was stultifyingly boring. Yeah. <laughs> Most 21-year-olds are not in for a rip-roaring night of classical jams and red wine. <laughs> but Amanda talks about it like, she's like, I didn't understand. When I was in Seattle, we went to the symphony all the time. It was so much fun. Girl, <laughs> you're so precious. I want to put you in my pocket. Go to the symphony. Don't go to Italy. Oh. But Amanda decides to stay for the rest of the concert, and that is where she meets Raffaele Solicito. Yeah, she's sitting alone at a table. He approaches her and asks if he can sit with her. She discovers he speaks better English than she does Italian. They talk about music and how it is uncommon that they both like this music. (laughs) (laughs) And then she says, do you want to walk me home? And halfway home, um, he starts talking about like, I want to smoke a little pot or something do you want to come with me? And she's like, yeah, I do. So then they stop somewhere beautiful and scenic and they kiss. And then they go home to Raffaele's apartment together because Raffaele lives alone. He has his own apartment. So from here on out, she stays with him when she's with him because that makes sense. You date somebody that has their own place. You're not going to go back to your house where you share with like a billion other people. Um, (laughs) I'm going to be pretty honest about this guy. Raffaele is like an adorable little glasses-wearing video game nerd. Yes. He's three years older than Amanda, but he has like zero experience with women before her. So this beautiful American woman giving him attention is a huge deal to him. He falls in love the second that he meets her. Like he is in it to win it right away. The two of them bond over their interests and the fact that they both also speak modest German because Amanda has German family and he was in Germany for a time. Um, and they develop this little game of making funny faces at each other to make each other laugh. Mm-hmm. This also comes back yeah. later. And it was the kind of thing that gets very, very intimate very, very fast, which I think we can all kind of have a touchstone like that in our lives where you're yeah. dating someone and it's just so much so fast and you're really in it. And Amanda describes him as like someone who showed her the kind of kindness she was used to seeing at home. And so he felt like very much like home to her when oh, she met him. Oh, that's so nice. Isn't it? No, I thought that was super sweet because it had all been very culture shocky and people had been very different to her and she really couldn't find her footing. And she met this man who seemed to be like, you feel familiar. Okay. So that's, that's you know, kind of how they got into that so fast. And when you're that age, you fall in love immediately. <laughs> and then you give that person every second of your time forever. Yeah. <laughs> Until they probably break your heart in some dramatic way. <laughs> I'm frequently stuck at how this relationship gets described. When they ask Amanda and Raffaele about like things they did, they're like, well, we have this habit of doing, this is how we always did things. When one would do dishes, I would rub his back or he would rub my back. That's just how we did things. They were together for seven days. Yeah. You always did what? You can't always anything in seven days. But that just, that's just how young they were. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It really speaks every to like day, the playing house Yeah, sense. every day feels like a month. Yeah. So it's like seven days to them was- Seven months. Yeah. Yeah, 
there you go. It's like dog years. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Baby relationship years. Yep. I like that. That's a good one. So at this point, Amanda and Meredith are are obviously still close friends and roommates, but they had both independently found their tribes, which happens with college roommates. Mm-hmm. Totally normal. You can go home and have like crazy sleepover times with your roommate, but you don't talk to them the rest of the day. Right. That can be a thing. Um, Meredith was spending a lot of time with her British friends and Giacomo, and Amanda was spending all of her time with Raffaele, which I mentioned he lived alone, so they were always at his apartment. Um, so Amanda and Meredith became like passing ships. But at this point, Halloween is just a few days away. And while it doesn't have the history that it has in the United States over in Perugia, it is the busiest night of the year in most bars. They tie it with New Year's Eve. Oh. Okay. Which like it's busy here, but that's crazy. Yeah. Um, but it's because costume parties and spooky things are fucking great. That's what college kids do. Yeah. You can be slutty and drunk for a night. It's so great. It's amazing. I don't understand why people don't listen to me. We should have like three Halloweens. It would make life a lot more interesting. Yes. (laughs) I keep telling the people that make holidays and they keep not listening to me. The board of holidays does not listen. I know. Who did, who did Biden appoint for? It should be me, I think. Holiday police. (laughs) The international board of holidays. Yes. Well, I say three Halloweens. Just saying it gets real boring in like March. We could throw in another Halloween. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we celebrated half a ween. We did. And we will be again. Don't forget. So maybe we can celebrate quarter a ween. So many ween. weens. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> We're going to come back to that. The girls checked in with one another about their plans for Halloween night, which would be one of the last times they exchanged words. Amanda went to work and then spent the night with Raffaele, and Meredith went dancing at her favorite bar, dressed as a vampire. There's pictures of her, like, yeah. with the bloody mouth and stuff. I was confused at some of the photos of the face she was making. Oh. And then I realized Chitty. later that it was a, like, vampire. She was, like, dressed up for Halloween. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that makes sense now. It's like, what weird photos they're showing I know. Her. Yeah, because that, that's, like, the one of the last nights she went out. She goes yeah. out the next night and then, you know. But Amanda, like, forgot she had to have a costume, so she just wore black clothes. And she just said, I'm a kitty cat. <laughs> Yeah, that's the move. It is the move. That's it. I know. It's like, oh man. Yep. That's how that goes. So the next morning, the girls meet up briefly and check in with each other about their evening. Um, So Raffaele had come over in the afternoon for a meal. Meredith had stopped home to do some laundry. She told Amanda that that night, November 1st, she would be going out with her British friends. And Amanda relayed that she would be staying in at Raffaele's and possibly going to work because she was on call at work. And that they would also be going away for the weekend after that. They're going away for a romantic weekend in the countryside. Mm. And this is the last time Amanda and Meredith ever speak. Now, before we get into this night of and what happens, um, a quick word about Meredith and Amanda's relationship. Was it perfect? Of course it wasn't. Roommate-dom is hard. It's hard to live with somebody. And it would later come out that Meredith had spoken to her other roommates about like petty annoyances she had with Amanda, mostly that she wasn't tidy enough, like she said she didn't clean enough. And some there are in some articles, they say that she was like, well, she's a little crazy when it comes to boys. But, Mm. like, that's a far cry from what they eventually say about her. And also, that is absolutely what you say about your girlfriends at that age. Yeah. Especially because she's staying over there all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've Yeah, we've all said that. Absolutely. And apparently, um, 
the, the one run in that they had, the one, it is not an argument. It's like an awkward moment they had is that at some point Meredith had to come to Amanda and say, every time you go to the bathroom, you have to use the toilet brush. So like, oh, she got on her about cleaning the toilet. But here's the thing. I would never think you had to brush the bowl every time you use the bathroom. No, that could have been a weird thing that they did. Italian toilets might not be as strong. Also, they might not might not have the water pressure we do. Yeah, it could be. It could very well be different. But I'm just saying, like Amanda's from America, we're from America. I wouldn't. That would not enter my mind. But of course, like I don't do that because I'm a unicorn who doesn't make any kind of waste, so it wouldn't have mattered. Exactly. We wouldn't have known. We've would been sparkling all the time. There have been <laughs> rainbows everywhere. And Amanda, you said that she lived with her parent or her mom, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she didn't. This is the first time she's she living lived with in a, a roommate. Yeah, because she she even commuted to college from her parents' house. Okay. She so never this is lived her alone. first time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So being messy and like forgetful is the kid thing to do when you haven't right. lived somewhere. She can't else. just leave her door open and have her dad pass by and clean it. Exactly. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Also, like you just said, this is a very common shit talk. I'm 100% positive that my college roommates talk shit about me all the time. Except Sammy. She's perfect and kind and a wonderful queen. (laughs) I love you, girl. That's true. She's perfect. As of right now, absolutely none of the things I have said so far sound weird to me. Right. Okay. Hang on to your hat. So here we are on November 1st. Ooh. Yeah. Meredith has left. She said she's going to go meet up with her friends and hang out for the night. She's going to go dancing at her favorite club. Then that night, um, Amanda and Raffaele have gone back to his house where they plan to watch Amelie and make dinner. Amanda's real into Amelie. Like, it's her favorite thing because she thinks they're kindred weirdos, which is a thing that I feel like a lot of girls that age thought when they saw that movie. Because who doesn't want to be a beautiful and fanciful weirdo? I never watched that one. It's good. She's very weird. I can picture... I can picture it though, like the. Mm-hmm. But like, that's the kind of thing. It's it, this is like a precursor to being a manic pixie dream girl. I feel like it's a very yeah. similar thing. Like she was so fanciful. <gasps> oh my god, what a dream! <sighs> She's not like other girls, right? So yeah, I can see why someone that age would be really taken in by that. And she says a million times, like, I can't believe Raffaele hasn't seen this movie. It's life changing. <laughs> so. They go back to his house, they put they download this movie, and Amanda gets a text from her boss, Patrick, around 8.30 at night telling her she doesn't need to come to work. She, she's super excited. She's like, woohoo, we're going to spend the whole night together. It's going to be so fun. We're going to do all this boring shit. It's going to be great. After Patrick texts her that, Amanda texts back the exact Italian translation of the following very common American phrase, see you later, have a good evening. Something we would say... All the time. Mm-hmm. In Italian, it's ci vediamo più tardi buona serata. Perfect. Not perfect, but that's the <laughs> words. And, and so this is what she thought when she said those words. She thought she said, see you later. Have a good evening. Right. Total casual. Makes perfect sense to us. Then Amanda and Raffaele finish Amelie at about 9.15, 9.30. They make dinner, which is fish and a simple salad. And at that time, they notice the sink had been leaking. And Raffaele tries to mop it up, but he doesn't have enough towels. So it's like a big leak. There's like a big puddle on the floor. So Amanda volunteers to bring her mop over the next day before the pair leave for their weekend getaway. It's important because she gets the mop later. That's why I'm telling you all this. Okay. Next, the two of them smoke a joint, and they read German Harry Potter to each other. Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> I read this evening. I'm like, this is Leslie's perfect night. Oh, She'd be like, let's so watch funny. a movie about a fanciful weirdo. I know. Then make this this healthy dinner and read German Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would have been like, let's watch Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Mm-hmm. And then some Harry Potter we'll read. And I'll, you know, it'll be great. And make you fish in a salad. Yes. See? Man, this Everything. is your night. I know. Yeah. I was thinking of that when I was writing this. So then after they read Harry Potter in German and smoke a joint, they start talking about their families and they open up about their painful pasts. And this is another big new relationship thing that everybody does. Like, we talk for a thousand hours. But Raphael's mother had suddenly died a couple years prior. He is like the saddest character in the story to me. So they talk about that. And then they, of course, immediately have sex. Because after you have a deep, meaningful conversation about your sadness, you have to have sex with your new boyfriend. Right. I mean, they're rubbing each other's backs the whole time. Yeah. It's going to happen. They're like, I'm so sorry about your pain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> because in a new relationship, what do you do? You have a deep conversation and then you have sex. That's your life. Yeah. Sometimes you eat, but that matters a lot less. Amanda also notices that um, during their fooling around, Raffaele leaves a hickey on her neck. Ooh. Oh, youth. Man, oh man. I hate hickeys. Yeah, I call them a whore's mark. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I call them, if you're an actor on stage and you roll up with a giant hickey, <gasps> ooh, <yeah. laughs> you got some explaining to do. <laughs> I don't know a single actor that hasn't done that and been like, he needs so much foundation. Yeah. Oh, it's well. just a straightener burn. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Or a curling iron burn. Yeah, yeah. that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Well, the next morning, so they go to sleep after that, obviously. That was exhausting. On November 2nd, Amanda leaves Raffaele's house early in the morning because she wants to go to her house to shower and pack her bags for the weekend. When she arrives at her flat, the door is standing wide open. Now, there's been trouble with their door in the past. So while Amanda thinks it's a little weird the door is open, she doesn't think it's so weird that she can't go in the house. And this is an important factor. When you see weird things, your brain does the job it's supposed to do, and immediately explains them to you. Yes. You don't go like, danger, fire. Your brain goes, oh, probably an accident. Just like, you know, she's going to go on to do this a lot. But like, I need people to like have that in your head and remember that if this was your house, I don't think the first thing you would think was that there was something terrible that had happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, So then she goes in and goes into the bathroom because she's going to take a shower. And she sees that in the sink, there are two pea-sized drops of blood. She had just gotten like extra piercings in her ears. So she thought, oh no, am I bleeding? Did I bleed in the sink? And so she goes and looks at the drop and scratches at it with her fingernail and notices it's dry. Now this is a bathroom she only shares with Meredith. So she assumes, oh man, she must have nicked herself. She must have had her leg up on the sink, was shaving her legs before she went out or something, cut herself, there you go. Or she had a nosebleed or she flossed too hard. There are a myriad of reasons why there could be drops of blood in the sink. Although if Meredith is concerned about using the toilet brush after each use, she probably mm-hmm. would have cleaned that up. Right, and she also notices there's a little smear of it on the faucet. Right. She's like, okay, there's blood, this is weird. I don't want to think of anything bad. Yeah. I don't want to think anything is wrong is like her motto for a long time. Mm-hmm. And she gets in the shower, takes a shower, and when she steps out, she notices there's a larger spot of rust-colored stuff on the bath mat. So this is like a bigger blood stain. But again... Her mind goes, oh, well, I guess Meredith, like, didn't realize she got her period and it got kind of messy. Live with women, that happens, Mm -hmm. I guess. I mean, I don't think I've ever destroyed a bath mat, but it's not impossible. Right. So then Amanda goes into her room, packs her bags, um, and goes to leave. 
she's going back to uh, Raffaele's house. Now, as I mentioned, like Occam's razor tells us that the simplest solution is usually correct. And frequently our brain rushes to fill that right in for us. So she just filled in all the gaps and left, but she couldn't really shake the feeling that like something is off. So she goes in after she's packed and stuff to blow dry her hair in her roommate's bathroom. This is the big bathroom, she calls it. So I'm assuming it's a little more accessible to like a living room area. Okay. And um, she notices that there's um, feces left in the toilet, which again is really strange because we all talked about how you had to be super fastidious with your shits in that house. Right. So finding a toilet, and it's a gross shit, you can see pictures of it if you want, filled of that is extremely uncommon. But her brain also says, maybe the toilet wasn't working. Maybe someone got a phone call. Maybe there was something distracting. Maybe someone was drunk or high. Who the fuck knows? There's, there's shit in the toilet, whatever. So she gets her stuff and leaves, and the mop. She gets her coat, her bag, the mop, and leaves. But about halfway to Raffaele's house, she starts getting a gnawing feeling in her stomach that gets to her. So Amanda immediately calls her mother. She explains the event. She goes, is this weird? Her mom goes, yeah, that's kind of weird. But like, don't, don't be like, don't lose your mind. Don't be too concerned. Then she calls her roommate Philomena and she says what happens, but Philomena is not calm. She's freaking the fuck out. She says, you, she's like, you need to know that Meredith was alone in that house that night. They were both um, away for the evening. Um, Laura had gone to Rome for a conference and Philomena was stayed at Marco's house and um, Meredith was the only one there. Mm. So she said, you need to call Meredith and find out what happened. And so Amanda says, okay, well, I'll do that. And then she walks the rest of the way to Raffaele's house because she's almost there at that time. And she tells him what happened. And then they sit down and eat breakfast. Oh. Which is, again, a strange choice. I would never have been able to sit down for a meal at this point. But as we've already seen, she's not really dealing with anything. So if you really want to go with the narrative that nothing is wrong, it's not weird to eat breakfast. Right. So she did. Then while they're eating breakfast, she gets another phone call from Philomena saying, well, what did you find? Did you go back there? What's happening? Did you talk to Meredith? What's going on? And she's like, we're leaving now. Relax. Oh, she makes such a series of very poor social choices. They really bite her in the ass. Um, so then Raphael and Amanda go back to the house. They, upon entering, they start calling for Meredith. Meredith, are you here? Because Amanda had called her on the phone a couple times. She didn't answer. They knock on Meredith's door, no answer. They jiggle the handle and find out that her bedroom door is locked, which is weird. But Amanda again goes, well, sometimes when she's changing, she locks the door. Okay, your mind is still explaining, explaining, explaining. Then they notice that Philomena's room is completely trashed. There's a rock on the floor, broken glass all over the bed, and clothing everywhere. But nothing seems to be missing. It just really looks like at this point that somebody broke in. So Philomena calls again because she has this sense of urgency that people want to see. Right. And Amanda updates her. So Philomena then freaks the fuck out. And she's like, I'm coming over. At this point, Amanda and Raffaele are frantically trying to find Meredith. They're thinking, well, where is she? Could she possibly be in the apartment downstairs? So they try and look there. They can't get inside. Um, Amanda tries to like climb in and see in her window, but she can't. Um, there's like not access to it in a place you can climb, but she does try. So then at this point, Amanda calls her mother again and tells her about what has happened. Somebody, somebody broke into our, our house. And her mom says, okay, well, you need to get out of that house and call the police. Yeah, that seems like the first step any of us would have taken, but right. you cannot judge how other people deal. But fiends, I will tell you this. The second you see blood, you call the damn cops. 
This today is a cautionary tale. You may not think something bad has happened the second your spidey senses tingle, but you have to call the cops. Which one is worse, overreacting and being a little embarrassed or going to jail for four years for a murder you didn't commit? Ooh. Yeah, the second one. So Amanda and Raffaele go outside, like I said, and call the cops. In Italy, it's like 112, not 911. That's mentioned in every article. It's not that interesting, but still. (laughs) Um, On her way out the door, Amanda like kind of takes another glance around, and she doesn't see the shit in the toilet. She's like, oh, it's gone. So whoever was here was still here when I was there before, and they flushed the toilet. So they're harboring under the assumption that like this person is right there somewhere. So yeah, the phantom shit is gone. The police and Philomena arrive shortly after they make these phone calls. Um, And these are the postal police? I don't truly know what that... I mean, it's just like, I guess it would be like, you know, beat cops as opposed to detectives. They only have so many rights. They can't, like, investigate a crime scene. They can just kind of look around and report what happened. So they tell Philomena and Amanda, and Philomena had brought a couple friends with her. They tell the group of people that have assembled, we found these two cell phones. They were thrown over your neighbor's garden wall. She turned them into the police. They are registered to um, Meredith, and one is registered to Philomena. And Philomena's like, that's weird. I have my cell phone. But then she remembers that the other phone is a British phone Meredith had, and she lends her, Philomena has lent her her SIM card to use for local calls. So these clearly both belong to Meredith. She had been using one to call her parents back in England and one to call local in Italy. So that's that's, uh, starts to prick people's interest. Then they go inside. The cops go to just look around and... They see like, well, nothing has been stolen. This looks like a break-in that you kind of caught in the act and the person fled. So we think you're okay. And then Meredith says, but we can't open, um, not Mer- Amanda says, we can't open Meredith's door. I don't, I'm worried about my roommate. Her door is locked. I haven't heard from her. Those are her phones. And they're like, oh, wait, that's very different. <laughs> they're like, okay, well, let's, so they, they go to knock and yell her name again, which like they've already clearly yeah. done. Um, and Philomena is is panicking at this point. And the cop says to Amanda, does she normally lock her door? And Amanda said, well, sometimes when she gets dressed, she locks it. When Philomena yells over top of her, she never locks her door. This is strange. Right. Because this is a 28-year-old woman thinking with a very clear head. Yeah. And a 20-year-old girl who is extremely confused. Yeah. So they, Philomena's like, you have to break this door down. We have to see what's inside. We ha-, and the cops are like, I can't do that. I don't have a warrant to destroy your property. We can't do that. So the people Philomena brought with her then shoulder the door and break it the fuck down. Philomena and the policemen walk in. They are the first to see this, the scene. The room is a bloody mess. There is a blood smear on the wall. There is blood all over the floor. And they see, um, what they start yelling is, a foot, a foot. Because they see a large tan duvet on the floor, and under it, in a corner, you see sticking out a blue-tinted foot. Oof. hmm But what Amanda hears, because she's translating all this, and remember, she's about mm, six weeks of Italian under her belt at this point, is a foot, a foot, there's a foot in the armoire. Because it was by her, like, dresser. So what Amanda thinks is they have found a dead body in the armoire in this room. And contrary to what people will say later, she does not see this crime scene at all. She doesn't see the bloody room. She doesn't see her roommate dead. She because right, she never goes nope. in there. No, she doesn't. Afterwards. She doesn't. But a lot of people say that she did. Mm. She doesn't. Philomena is screaming and sobbing and understands the gravity of everything that is happening. The police are screaming. They're saying there's a lot of blood. All of this is chaos all of a sudden. And they say, all right, everybody out. Right, so now they have a crime scene that they have to clear. 
So all the roommates go out onto the front lawn where Philomena is sobbing. The other people with her are crying. They're calling Giacomo, her boyfriend, to tell her what's going on. And Amanda is not really reacting. She's just kind of standing there looking very perplexed and like clutching her boyfriend. Amanda and Raffaele are like still kind of making out and cooing at one another. So immediately the news of this incident breaks, like the press is immediate. And what they announce first is there's a student in Perugia who is brutally murdered. It's splashed all over European news, but initially no name is attached to the victim at this stage. But there are pictures of the villa where they lived. Um, and there's video of the people gathered out there. And later in his book, Meredith's father would reveal that upon seeing this, he just saw the house that his daughter was staying in and no name attached to it. And he saw roommates. And he, because he was a reporter, contacted his like friends in the press and was like, I need you to tell me anything you know about this, just person to person. And one person said, well, they're saying that the victim's name is Meredith. Oh my God. And that's how he found out. That's how his he daughter. found yeah. out? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He found out from his press contacts from when he like wrote freelance articles. So how long was that? Not long. It would have been before her name broke from the press. It would have been like day of. Okay. I mean, like he wouldn't get contacted. Because this was the morning. Yeah. This would be like sometime that afternoon, probably. Like I don't, like I said, I don't have his book. I read that excerpt of it when he talks about it. They wouldn't have been able to take Meredith's phone to call. Even mm-hmm. they wouldn't have let them no, the touch it because I'm sure Philomena would have been like, "We need to call mm-hmm. parents," but none of them would have had the number, and it no, would have only been on her phone. No, but that's how quick the press was there. The press that's, was on yeah. scene as soon as they heard there was a murder, uh-huh. and they and and because he had press contacts, European press contacts, he right. could find out anything they knew. Right, right. And as we will later come to find out, the press found things out quickly and just just spewed information as quickly as they could. Yeah. So yeah, I thought that was a really sad little footnote. Uh, Meredith's subsequent autopsy revealed that her injuries consisted of 16 bruises and seven cuts. These included several bruises and a couple of um, insubstantial cuts on the palm of her hand. This is a defensive wound, so it shows that she fought her attacker. There were bruises on her nose, nostrils, mouth, and underneath her jaw, which are compatible with the prints of a hand being clamped over your nose and mouth. The autopsy report revealed... It was reviewed by three pathologists from Perugia's Forensic Science Institute who interpreted the injuries, including some to her genital region, as indicating an attempt to immobilize her during an act of sexual violence. Mm. So she was being held down while struggling and raped, is what they're saying, in a nicer way. So obviously this is a sensational crime. After she's held down and this violence is done to her, um, the, the, what ended her life ultimately was the killer uh, slashed her throat with a knife. So we see a relatively deep cut. It's clear that it's from a knife. It's clear that she has stab wounds. So any, any forensic ex- expert is going to say, like, this is what happened. So this crime rockets Perugia into the international spotlight, where it is most certainly not used to being. And there in the background of all the media, as I mentioned, is Amanda and Raffaele standing in the grassy patch outside the house, kissing each other talking in low voices, laughing, stroking each other's arms, whispering and looking into each other's eyes. And this immediately catches the eye of Perugia's lead prosecutor, Giuliano Mignini. I'm going to say this name (laughs) not right every other time, but I said it right that time. So just think of that every time. Uh, And this guy really loves to take a detective-like role in his cases. 
He's not a detective. He's a prosecutor. But he goes to all the crime scenes and, like, investigates. And he says in the documentary about Amanda Knox that he, like, fancies himself Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. That part made me so mad. He's like, I like to look for clues. I And then I take those clues and I link them and I figure out the story. Yeah. No, that's not how real crime works, friend. Yeah. I forgot that he was just the prosecutor. Mm -hmm. No, he's not a detective at all. But he's on scene for everything, and he is— You would have thought he was the lead detective. That's how he talks. The lead yeah. detective was, um, I believe, a woman named Rita Ficara. Yeah. That's the woman who talks uh, who um, talks to Amanda a mm. lot later. Not very nicely. But this guy sees this event and logs it in his head. He's like, oh, that shit's—that's pretty rough. He also talks about how he is a super devout Catholic, mm-hmm. and he puts a lot of emphasis on morality, on how women have to, uh, on women appearing moral and having certain virtues. Right. So he sees this woman making out with this guy on the lawn after someone has been murdered, their roommate has been murdered, and his bells and whistles have all gone off. He's like, well, that's the devil right there. Um, he also talks about how he has four daughters, mm-hmm. and so his heart immediately went out to um, Meredith's family. He just felt for them. He just really could feel their pain. But here's the thing. Amanda is also a girl. Right. So if your heart goes out for the plight of women, why is it demonizing another one immediately? Exactly. Because it fits your narrative, what you want to put forward. So anyway, his his thought that he's Sherlock Holmes, always finding clues and solving the case, is much like the rest of this case from here on out. A total fantasy. So Amanda, Raffaele, and the rest of Meredith's friends and roommates were then taken to the Questora, which is like, um, I feel like it's a police station, but it's really just for questioning people. I don't think we have buildings solely dedicated to that here, but that's what it appears to be. Everybody goes in and makes statements, very tearful statements. They're sobbing. Meredith was, it's such a tragic thing. They're a wreck. They just saw her. They can't understand who would do this. But that's not how Amanda is. Amanda snaps into helper mode. And this is a reaction that you can sometimes see in kids, like when they see grown-ups fighting. Yeah. And they don't cry. They want to help. They're like, how can I? I'm going to fix it. I'm, how do I fix it? That's what she did. She immediately was like, I'm the police's helper. I'm going to help them solve this crime. I'm going to do this service. I'm going to get justice for my roommate. And then I'm going to go back to being an adult in Italy. It's fine. She talks about this at length in her book, how like for like a long time, her frame of mind was that she was an invaluable help to these detectives, and she right. was like doing police work with them, mm-hmm. which is not what was happening at all. But that's what she sees in her head. So everyone deals with grief and panic differently, and lots of people were definitely sobbing and calling their mom and dad. But this is Amanda's not. She doesn't even call her mom to come. Like she talks to her mom a couple times, but her mom's like, "Should I come to Italy? What do you want me to do?" Amanda has an, an aunt that lives in Germany. She's like, "You should go stay in Germany right now. You should like get out of there, be with family." And she's like, "No, no, no. I have to stay here. I have to help the police." Which is like a critical misstep because she could have left and not have any of this interrogation done. It's funny that she would have gone to Germany. <laughs> yeah. We'll find out why. Oh no. <laughs> and she also puts a lot of emphasis on how much she wanted to be an adult. Mm-hmm. She kept saying, like, I'm, I'm an adult. I'm an, I can handle this because this is what adults do. But she also didn't think she was being suspected of murder yet. Not at all. Not even a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, which in hindsight is like, I can't believe you didn't see this. But she didn't. I, and, I, and this is where I can't identify with her. I would have been like, I got to call my mom and go home right now. I would have never been like, I want to stay in this country with these cops who are like questioning me nonstop. I would have needed family members. Yeah. And also, the police at this point tell her numerous times not to call a lawyer. She right. said, do I? I might need a lawyer. They're like, no, you don't. That makes you look guilty. Don't get a lawyer. 
oh, okay, I won't. So never at one point in time did she lawyer up on her own accord. And this is why I say you have to lawyer up immediately. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm 39 and I would want to run home. But it's hard when you're 20 and you feel like you should trust the cops. Right? That's another thing. She says this multiple times that she really, truly believed that because she had done nothing wrong, the truth would set her free. It's fine. Like, I, I'm telling the truth, so they're going to find that out and it's fine. And she also believed for a point in time that the police were always good and yeah. that they were just there to help her and to get justice for her friend. And that is not at all the experience that she went on to have. So what's happening behind her back, though, is like way more sinister. The prosecutor, Mangini, had gone back to examine the scene of the crime. You know, the man with four daughters who thinks he's Sherlock Holmes. He had seen, he, so he goes there and he sees Meredith's body and it's covered by the tan duvet. And he immediately says, that killer was a woman. Men don't cover up bodies. Only women cover up bodies. Which, like, I'm sorry, sir. Allow me to introduce you to, like, a million cases where a man covers up a body. Right. Normally it, normally it means that they're familiar some, sometimes. Yeah, they're like, That's oh, I don't want to see them yeah. like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he says only a woman would think to do that. Men would never think to cover a body afterwards. <laughs> Such a, like, blunt statement. Fucking asshole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, then he, it, like, it ticks off in his head that, like, oh, Meredith was out. Oh, not Meredith. I have the wrong thing written. Uh, Amanda's out there, like, making out, and she's not crying. Mm-hmm. And when she comes in, she's not upset. So, like, maybe she has some link to this case because it was definitely a woman. Do you see the wild connection that is being made here? Yes. There's no, uh, absolutely no evidentiary anything. She's just going, right. ooh, I don't like you. Right. I'm going to make you do this. And he also says that like, well, Meredith was a very classy woman who was full of morals and would never do anything wrong. And I'm not saying that she wasn't, but at this point in time, the only thing he knows about her is that she's dead. Mm-hmm. So I don't know where this is coming from either. And from that moment on, Amanda is the murderer in this case. So over the next four days, Amanda and Raffaele are interrogated endlessly. It's like a solid cycle where they just keep being brought back into the quest store. She goes home for not that long. She's not sleeping at all. She's not eating. And she's like just kind of always in this state of hazy panic. So after two days, of which they tell her she has to endlessly repeat every single detail. Now, this is a technique I'm going to get into later, but it's something police do where they're like, okay, tell us what you did that day. In, in like every minute detail from like, I scratched my nose, I took three steps, but they make you do it a hundred times. Mm-hmm. And if you scratch your nose in a different place in the story, they're like, you're not right. What happened there? They pick everything you say apart. So this method of inter- interrogation is not as popular as it used to be for a lot of reasons, but that is what they're trying to do to her here. And as we've said before, liars have their story straight yeah, and truth tellers don't. So it would make sense that she'd be like, I don't know, maybe we had dinner at 11 o'clock. Maybe we had dinner at 9 o'clock. I don't really know. But after two days, they say, well, we're going to take you back to the scene of the crime, which is not a thing people do, to look for evidence. Okay. Wow. Yeah, you don't parade people back into a crime scene, but they, they tell her to. So they take her into the apartment, and they walk her around, and they open the knife drawer, the bottom knife drawer. Now, this is not like where they keep their actual cooking knives. It's like, you know how we all have an extra drawer? It's like yeah. where your kitchen utensils you don't use a lot are. It's that drawer. And they go, okay, what's missing? Where's the murder weapon? And that's when she's like, what? Why are you asking me this? And she starts to connect things in her head. And then the gravity of the situation 
immediately rushes to the surface for her and she starts screaming and pacing and smacking herself in the head because she's just had some kind of like, well, the shock's gone now and now I'm dealing with my roommate being brutally murdered and the police holding me against my will for days at a time. So she's she's losing her mind. Now, of course, the prosecutor is there for this because he's there for everything because he's Sherlock Holmes, looks at her and says, she can hear Meredith's screams in her head. Yeah. That's why she's hitting her head. It's all coming back. She's remembering what happened. So she's hitting herself in the head and screaming because she can see it before her very eyes. Did she ever say that? Absolutely not. He made that shit right up. But now it's a fact. So you and I are going to recognize this as a moment, like a psychological moment where her shock wore off and she's going through shit. But like, nope, that's not how it gets projected immediately to the press who are getting blow by blow of everything that happens somehow. And at this point, Amanda is at the Questora more than she isn't. She's spending nights at Raffaele's house, but she has no access to clothing. So one day, Raffaele takes her to the store to buy some new underwear. She's like just wearing his clothes, but she's like, I don't mm-hmm. want it to be real. I don't want to buy new clothes. I'm going to get my clothes back. It's going to be fine. I just, I need to change my underwear. Also because she has her period Yeah, at this point in time. Which is probably also why she thought, like, maybe it was her period footprint. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because she was having one herself. Yeah, and they could have been lunarly synced <laughs> yeah. up. So then um, they buy one pair of red underwear. Of course, another choice you'd make when you have your period. Okay. Um, When you were in college, where did you buy your underwear? Anywhere. But like, where would you have just gone and just gotten your underwear from? So I would have just gone. I always bought my underwear at Victoria's Secrets. Yeah. I just, it. Yeah, that's right. I very rarely got it in like a package at like a store. Yeah, no, they went to like a shop that sold underwear. Right. And she picked out, and it was not contrary to popular reports. It's not a beautiful thong that was all lacy. It was a pair of briefs with a cartoon on the front. Oh, Yeah, they're not sexy underwear. Nope. I was just like, of course she would have gone into like an underwear store. Like that's where you go to get underwear at that age. No, they weren't sexy underwear. Yeah, I wouldn't have gone to like CVS. They were red briefs with like a little character on the front. I picture like a Hot Topic or something. But But I did, I remember seeing the store and it was like a boutique kind of place. But like, it's also Italy. She said she picked like the first thing she saw. She wasn't like, I need cute underpants. Mm -hmm. And Raffaele bought them for her because he's like the nicest man in the world. Right. And then reporters immediately get footage of this and they're Uh like, he bought her sexy underwear because all they're doing is laughing in the face of this murder. And then the store clerk chimes in and goes, oh yeah, I think I heard him say, I'm going to take you home and have dirty sex with you in this underwear. Oh my God. Also never happened. But the store clerk was like, I got to get in on this action. And so he did. So now this is how they are subtly starting to snowball Amanda's reputation. Then the media starts getting into her things. They get a hold of her diary. They talk to her friends. They get a hold of her MySpace page and find all kinds of stuff that they like. Now, when they're talking to the reporter in the documentary, I believe we said his name is Nick. Mm, Nick. Pisa, I think is his name, something like that. He um, he says, he calls this mana from heaven. He said, it's pay dirt. They find all this stuff about her. They find a picture of her on her MySpace page laughing while she's shooting a machine gun. They find pictures of her that her sister took posing in black, like looking kind of sexy on a piano. Her sister took that picture for an art class in school. It wasn't her being like, I'm a sex pot. And they find that her name on MySpace, I believe, is Foxy Noxie. And that's all they needed. That's all they needed. They called her this because she was cunning on the soccer field when she was 13. <laughs> Clever like a fox. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they said, oh, no, no, no. This is a femme fatale, a beautiful blonde American 
who killed her roommate in a wild sex game, gone awry. And that's what we're going to roll with forever. Nice. I know, which is like insane to me. So they also like her diaries talk about all the men that she had slept with while she was in Perugia. I think it was four men, seven men total in her whole life. And they're like, well, this is a whore. This is clearly a huge whore. All she did was sleep with everybody. And the, the, the prosecutor guy is also trying to paint her as very amoral. It's always that. It's like, well, she had no morals. She was such a base and terrible woman. Look what she was doing. That combined with the pictures of her buying underpants and making out with her boyfriend lent the press to really being able to paint her effectively as a manipulative sex pot. I mean, it worked. Because I remember this case in the beginning, and I remember thinking, oh my God, that fucking woman is guilty as shit. Right. Before the rest of it came out. So all this is happening. She's still back being questioned. And um, we're on like day four of questioning at this point. Co- pretty constant questioning. And at one point she has like a break when Raffaele is in being interviewed. And she's talking to another detective. And they're out in like a hallway. She's waiting for him. And he sits down next to her. He's like, hey, Amanda, like, why don't you just tell me a few details about what's going on? Which, who are you? Where the fuck did you come from? She's like, okay, I'm being helpful. And, um... She's talking about what she did and then herself. She's like, mentions that she likes yoga. And he goes, oh, you're flexible. Can you show me some stuff? So she gets up and does a split in a cartwheel. Girl, you are talking to a detective in a murder case. I read that and I was like, that is the craziest reaction to that I have ever heard in my life. You're not like, I am flexible. Here's my split. And also I can do some cartwheels. And of course, this at this specific moment in time, her interrogator comes out of the elevator and sees her doing this. Yeah. And she's like, you crazy bitch, get over here. You are so inappropriate. Stop doing this. Then before she goes back into be questioned, like Raffaele is there. So she's like standing outside the room with him and she's like cuddling up next to him and kissing him. And the um, interrogators are also like, what, what is wrong with you? Someone died. Why are you standing here making out? So this is something that I always found curious, but in in her book, she does go on to explain it. She said, you can take this however you want, that for her, that behavior, that like kissy, cuddly, make faces to laugh behavior was comforting. Right. She's like, he was comforting me. That made me less scared. So that's why we were doing that. But it looked like we were just like getting ready to go home and have sex, I guess. And yeah, it did. That's what it looked like. Right. There's also another incident where she's in the station and she's really like freaking out. And so Raffaele has her sit on his lap and and like bouncing bouncing her her. like a baby. He like bounces her on her lap and makes silly faces like you would do to an infant. Mm -hmm. This is nuts behavior to us. Mm -hmm. Like if we're going to be honest, we might as well be honest. But she's she's quirky. (laughs) She is. (laughs) And she is young and... And you know what? People behave weirdly. I think we've all had weird friends. It's not like that's not a thing. So all of those things happen. And then on this fourth day, the interrogators come in and they say, we have had a break in your case. Oh. Yeah. And she's like, what do you mean a break in my case? Oh, good. You must have found out who did it. And they say, Raffaele is broken. <gasps> yeah. So they, he has told the police that during the night, at some point at like... I think it's like 1 a.m. Amanda left the house for an hour and came back. Never happened. But here's what's happening to Raffaele on the other side of the door. Police are telling him that Amanda is a lying slut and that she does this kind of stuff all the time. Um, And they've done the same thing to him. He has not slept. He has not eaten. He's under extreme pressure. 
And he says that Amanda told him not to tell them that she left the house. Mm. Again, this is things they're probably like, when did she leave? Tell us when she left. When did she leave? What happened? When did she go there? And so eventually your reality is just altered and you will admit to shit. So they tell this to Amanda and she's completely devastated. Of course she's devastated. Why, why would Raffaele ever lie? He wouldn't. He, this guy that she thinks loves her. So they, she, they say, you left. Who, why did you leave? Why did you leave? Why did you leave? We have your phone. And she's like, oh, okay, well, who, what did you say? They're like, well, you texted this guy, Patrick. Why did you text Patrick? She goes, well, what does it say? I don't know. I can't remember. Because at this point, they're really leaning on her heavily. She talks about how she's exhausted and hungry. And she has no, like, sanitary products. So she's just, like, bleeding into her pants. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's like the most desperate, horrible moment a woman could ever have. And they say, we know that you went to see Patrick. Because Raffaele told us, and this text says, I'm going to see you later. Have a good night. Mm -hmm. And it does say that. It does say, I'm going to see you later. Have a good night. But that's not what she meant. Right. She meant the American colloquialism, see you later. That apparently doesn't translate into Italian, but she didn't know that. But they take this as a fact. And at this point, Amanda starts panicking. And she's like, I don't know what you're saying. That's not what I said. She said, I don't know what the fuck is going on. Now, another officer in the room that only spoke like Meh, eight words of English said, I know what fuck means. Fuck you. So then they write down that she's being violent. Mm. When really, she was just very, very confused. Eventually, they, they keep pressing her. They're like, why did you see Patrick? You left. You left. We know you left. You just have to tell us what happened. And eventually, it spins around long enough in her head that she goes, well, maybe I did leave. Raffaele says I left. These people are saying I just have repressed a memory. They're like, you just can't remember it because it's traumatic. You don't remember what you went through. Implanted memories are a very real thing. This is something right. that people can that can be done to people. So eventually, her head just starts flashing pictures. And she says she can see Patrick in his brown jacket at a basketball court by their house. Then she sees them going home and she hears Meredith screaming. This is like the version of a quote-unquote confession that she gives them. They all high-five. They fucking high-five. Oh, my God. And then they have her sign a confession. She has no idea what she's signing. She's like, okay. this, And they're like, all done. You're done now. You did it. She's like, oh, okay. Then they let her sleep on two chairs pushed together, still bleeding through her pants for like an hour. She hasn't slept in like 36 hours at this point, and they wouldn't let her eat or go to the bathroom. Now, we've already talked about like the effects of solitary confinement and how they can work after just 24 hours. And this is very similar with a lot of like pressure added on. Right. After she wakes up, she realizes like, I don't think I should have said those things. That's, that's not what happened. I told them my boss, this man, Patrick, committed this crime. She essentially signed a confession that said she went with Patrick, Patrick killed Meredith, she was there for it, and then they left. They, they then say, like, case closed, and they go to the press with all that again. Now, her friends are all, like, at this point out in the Questora, there's more people being called in, and her friends are saying things like, oh, I surely hope Meredith didn't suffer, and Amanda is really pissed and suffering, and she says, like, of course she fucking suffered. Somebody slit her throat. Right. But, of course, the police heard her say that, too, and they're like, well, you're insensitive and brash, and you're the only one that's being a dick, and everybody else is crying. Yeah, but now she's, like, been there forever. Yeah. I'd be pissed, too, exactly. at this point. There are, like, a hundred incidents that are just like like this, So then the general consensus of the press, because they also leak the things like she was doing cartwheels and splits and she was making out with her boyfriend. The press gloms on to the general consensus that she's crazy. So of course she's guilty. 
So, well, this is logical. Point A to point B. Of course she's guilty. She did this. So then she she's like, oh, fuck. I like, I know I messed up. I know I messed up. The other thing I haven't mentioned yet is that when they took her phone to read her texts, she had called her mother. And she said, I do want you to come right beforehand. Yeah. So now, while the police have her phone, it is ringing off the hook. And it's her mother who has come to Perugia and is trying to find her and can't. She's like, that's my mom. I have to answer the phone. They're like, no, you don't. You don't get your phone. So her mother has no idea what has happened to her or where she is. She is arriving in Perugia and Amanda knows her mother's trying to get in touch with her and she can't answer the phone that is like a foot away from her. Right. I, I can't imagine what it's like to be either one of those parties. That's, you, it's ringing and you see it's your mom and you can't answer and you just want your mom to help you. Right. That sounds like, like the worst nightmare in the world. And the police are just trying to get everything they can before mom comes in. And it's just like, exactly. You need a lawyer. And, and they stop talking. You need a lawyer. Yeah. And they did. They got absolutely everything. Um, And then they, you know, they went out with it. So then Amanda's arrested, obviously, and she's taken to prison. And. Before she's taken into prison, she talks to Mignini because uh, he's the prosecutor. So this is actually his job. Right. And he's like, okay, well, I need you to ta- like go through the events that happened with me so we can have this official confession and stuff. And she's like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. I, that's wrong. I said the wrong things. I'm so sorry. He's like, well, you wouldn't confess if you didn't do it. So you did it. Bye. Yeah. He keeps saying the same thing over and over to her again, which is, why did you name Patrick Lumumba? Why did you name him? Why would you say it if you didn't do it? Well, because they made her say it. Right. Okay, so we're going to stop there for this week. Oh my, a two-parter. I know, surprise. (laughs) We didn't know it was a two-parter. We did not, not till we finished. (laughs) And then it was really long. (laughs) (laughs) But that's good. We have a lot to bring you. Uh, So next week, we'll be back with Amanda Knox's trial and um, a lot of the details of the actual crime that occurred. And even her time in, because she is headed to incarceration at yeah, this point. Yeah, she's headed so. into prison. So we'll talk some about Amanda's incarceration and some about Raffaele's incarceration. Mm-hmm. We'll get into all of that second half stuff next week. So come back and listen. And um, no toast until next week. That's right. We have toasts next week. We have a tag next week. But this week, that's all you get. That's it. <laughs> so so bye. See, you, see you then. <laughs> bye. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Ci vediamo più tardi, buona serata.